Luke and his friends beat the crap out of them. And Luke is the one that does like, welcome to the OC, bitch. Like, he's the one that yes. delivers that line. Yes, like, yes. So um, yeah, it does manifest. everyone this is alex and this is em to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is the podcast for nostalgic gen x and millennials and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we love what we hate and what was just a little bit problematic about the tv and the movies that we were addicted to and do a little bit of rewriting where necessary Today's episode marks the beginning of season two of GBB, where we've put vampires to rest and we're taking on and we're taking our journey into white people problems. What better way to start things off than with rich white people problems via Fox's hit teen drama, The O.C.? The breakout hit of 2003, The O.C., is for better or for worse, part of the cultural fabric of the early 2000s and continues to have a huge influence on how teen dramas are written today. A perfect mix of Buffy-esque dialogue and Beverly Hills 90210 aesthetics, The O.C. also became inspiration for reality TV shows such as MTV's Laguna Beach and The Hills, as well as Bravo's The Real Housewives of Orange County. So what exactly made this series so groundbreaking? Stay tuned. Why don't you kick things off? Okay, so um, so season one, we're introduced to Ryan Atwood, who is a troubled teen uh, from Chino, is taken and is taken in by um, Sandy Cohen, um, a public defender who is married to a wealthy Kirsten uh, Kirsten Cohen. I don't actually know her maiden name, and. Nichols. Who, it was oh, Nichols, I think. That's yeah. right. Kirsten Nichols. And who and they have a son who is Ryan's age. Um, Ryan sort of meets Marissa and enters into a love triangle with her boyfriend Luke and you know, Ryan and Seth develop like the sort of key core friendship throughout the run of the series. And we also are introduced into like sort of the key what will become, I think, we now know as, like, the core four um, 
And it's funny, I think the OC definitely introduced that concept of like the core four in, in a series uh, where, uh, so in which we'll have um, Ryan and Marissa, Seth and Seth and Summer will end up being like our sort of core four in the narrative as it relates to the pilot. Um, and then uh, Seth sort of going for and eventually getting a long held pining for Summer Roberts um marissa's best friend then we learn sort of um just like the drama sort of happening around these like families and how like they fit into this oc like ecosystem so one of the cool things about the oc just in general is when it yeah it did start and it was like this this pilot episode it was this massive hit from the get-go and i think one of the most interesting things about the oc is one of the like really interesting things about the OC was like it was this huge hit when it first came out and I think the OC really is like you know we talk if we talk about Buffy being the the blueprint that um teen supernatural dramas will follow I think the OC is the blueprint for just what regular teen dramas will eventually follow and you see this in like a a bunch of ways like with this idea of like the core four of like the teenagers and you'll we'll have that again like in gossip girl and then riverdale sort of replicates that and there's all these sort of like things about the oc that are really cool um the oc was created by josh uh, schwartz and stephanie savage who also did gossip girl and one thing that, like, in my rewatch that I was, like, really struck by was how if Gossip Girl is, like, a, a love letter to, like, New York, New York City and, like, that landscape, um, the OC is definitely, like, a love letter to California and, like, I guess Orange County, California or, like, the in that sort of California coast. I was not expecting so many, like, of all these, like, really beautiful, like, shots of, like, the coast and, like, sort of slices of life, like, B-roll of, like, slices of life to, like, really make um, the landscape itself, like, a character. So that was really interesting and cool to me because I had totally forgotten that that had taken place. Um and it was just cool. It was really cool to like rewatch it for like a bunch of of reasons. For those reasons and that stuff. Um I yeah, I agree with Alex. This absolutely is like the West Coast equivalent of Gossip Girl who clearly draws a lot of inspiration from the OC. Um you know, the latter taking place in New York. Um the way the characters interact with each other and as Alex said, bringing the landscape into the narrative making it an essential part of the narrative you know manhattan's upper east side and on um the oc um orange county california and newport beach it's 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 integral to the narrative and it really is a love letter to um orange county um the the core four is actually also a really really great um um you know, dynamic to have in teen shows, like Alex said, they even use the term the core four on a, a couple episodes of the OC, um, which is interesting. Like they were actually naming what was happening. Um, Seth a couple times um, refers to himself, Summer, Ryan and Marissa as the core four. And then we get that again in Gossip Girl. Um, we get that again in Riverdale. And 
we don't get that, but we definitely get the dynamic in the way that teenagers talk to each other, even as late as MTV's um, teen series, Awkward. So it's very much happening. Um, and I really, really like what this show did. Like Alex said, it is very much the blueprint for a lot of teen dramas. Um, I It's obviously a direct inspiration for CW's reboot of 90210. Um, and even to a lesser extent, their reboot of Dynasty. So this show had a really, really, really um, far-reaching influence, um, as we said, not just with teen dramas, but reality shows that it influenced. If you look at Bravo's Real Housewives of Orange County, almost every single woman on that show behaves almost exactly like Julie Cooper Nickel, who is the character that's Marissa's mother on the OC. <laughs> right. I think um, you're totally right. I remember, I'm pretty sure I want to say Andy Cohen got, you know, um, Real, Housewives, Real Housewives of Orange County. That was the first Real Housewives out of that whole franchise. And I think he got it based off of the strength of um, the OC and how popular it was at the time. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I did find um, a, a link reference in um, the OC's Wikipedia page that said almost exactly what you just said, <laughs> where, <laughs> where he was like, he was like, this character is a character that people love to hate. But what if we had like a, a more hyperdramatic version of her? So they got basically Julie Cooper Nickel on steroids and put real life versions of her on this show, The Real Housewives, and was a runaway success. Right. God, God, you know, God bless Andy Cohen for really like reading a moment, like reading a room sure, and like getting it. He sure did. He sure did. He did what he had to do. Like, get your paper. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the OC um, season one. Um, Alex and I were both talking about this the other day and we were talking about how this season when we talk about long seasons, guys, this the season one of this show was so incredibly long. Yeah, it's really so a usual season order, like a season one order is usually really never more than 22 episodes. Right. That's why all of our like for a episode, like for a show like the OC, which is like a which is a one hour closed episodic. It's 20. You get a any at usually at any network you get like a 22 episode order and that's it the oc has 27 episodes in its first season which is unheard of so prior to the oc being on fox fox is a network that was pretty well known for canceling really great series one at maximum two seasons in right um we had shows like roar which I'm sure a lot of a lot of our listeners have never even heard of. It was actually a very short lived Fox series starring Heath Ledger. And it was set in like ancient Ireland, like right before the British um, colonization of Ireland. You know, you had shows like like a true calling, which is a, another one that fans wanted to, to last longer. Pretty much it kind of became Fox Network became the network where shows went to die and that only animated series could really flourish for more than two series. I, but something that I do think that the OC suffers from, that TVD suffers from, is that like after that first, after that, after those first two seasons, there's like definitely like a fall off of like, um, 
I think you can feel it sort of a sort of like lack of direction in the narrative and like a little like like they didn't quite know what mm-hmm. like to do going forward. And there mm-hmm. is there do, there does feel like a, a little shuffle. Um, but when it <laughs> I think the I think for me, season one, some of the greatest stuff was like um oh my gosh, just like the throwbacks, like it's such a it feels like season one feels like a specific moment and then like yet all at the same time just sort of like um gosh I don't know the word like it feels specific and not all at the same time like when they go to and maybe I'm like jumping ahead maybe this is really season two but like when they go like to Miami or something and then like T.I. like has like a whole segment (laughs) where he's performing (laughs) I was like girl what like I was like what is happening on this show um it was a lot it's but it's so it it was a lot in like the greatest way (laughs) well here's another thing too it didn't this is very important you guys it didn't feel like a lot like I said the they had like smaller things interspersed here and there that were really good, like bite-sized morsels of content. And then the, whatever the overarching plot line was would take place within seven to nine episodes each. So it definitely felt really entertaining and like we weren't being bombarded, um, with, with just stuff. Um, the OC very much walked a really great line between, um, between like giving us drama right because it is a teen drama and also like um being a very real kind of um comfort food slice of life this the slice of life that we were consuming just happened to be rich white people in newport beach but it didn't feel like they were going above and beyond to be dramatic for no reason (laughs) right (laughs) that's true that's so true they really focus on the relationships between just like the characters and like they sort of focus on this thing that you and I talk about a lot, which is like really just working on building these characters, building these relationships and um, letting the relationships and the characters drive this story um, rather than sort of throwing plot, throwing plot, throwing plot in order to try to make some, in order to try to like make the thing work. Sure, sure. Right. So let's recap season one first. In season one, like Alex said, we are introduced to Ryan Atwood. He is a troubled youth from Chino. Daddy's gone. Mom's an alcoholic. Stepdad is abusive and useless, and his older brother, Trey, um, is incarcerated once again. Now, this is Ryan's first, you know, running with the law. He's, you know, basically a good kid who just got, um, you know, succumbed to peer pressure via his older brother, Trey. And he meets Sandy Cohen, who is his public defender. Sandy takes a liking to this kid, sees a lot of himself in this kid, and realizes that someone just needs to give Ryan a real shot. And um, when Ryan's mom, you know, essentially abandons him, um, once he comes home, Sandy takes Ryan home with him. And that's where we meet his wife, Kirsten, as well as his son, Seth, who is Ryan's age and becomes Ryan's best friend. Uh, It should be noted that the Seth character 
although being much, much more tolerable than Xander Harris, was clearly inspired by Xander Harris from Buffy. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Alex? Oh, I mean, Seth, yeah. So Seth very much, very much feels like a like a Xander Harris copy. And and in the show, Seth is also like in the show, just like Xander on Buffy, Seth talk is like a very certain type. And he talks a lot about comic books and like nerd stuff, Seth, and he just falls into that type. And I think just like to make that connection. So it's interesting that like we start to see these sort of like, because now like in 2019, we're in a time where like, I think comic book culture is very mainstream because of, you know, the, the juggernaut that is Marvel DC. But it's interesting to sort of see these comic book nerd white men who are uh, creators who are sort of like placing themselves in these series who have, I think, self-placements in like their own series. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that I think they're all flourishing like in teen drama. But yeah, he's definitely like a, I would venture a placement a stand-in for um seth is for uh josh schwartz so we have like i said seth is much more tolerable than xander harris because he doesn't have like this very um entitled nice guy archetype that xander like you know like xander light or the three um had on buffy but so he's seth is actually much more likable version of xander which is cool um then when Oh, sorry, I was gonna say he is, and he is because like he's very self-loathing. I think like he realizes. I was just, sorry, I was just trying to think of like why does Seth work and Xander like really doesn't in the rewatch? Because I don't hate Seth in this rewatch the way like I sort of hated Xander in the rewatch, and I think it's because Seth has like a a sort of self-deprecation and self-loathing and like self-awareness that xander harris doesn't that's all sorry continue no you're good um i actually agree with that um especially the last point self-awareness this is something that xander harris lacks you know in a in a really critical way and i think that even for characters who are nothing like him that lack of self-awareness is a very unlikable characteristic. Um, like this character is very, very self-absorbed and it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, Seth will always be that goofy, lovable guy and Xander just won't. And the fact that good things, you know, for the most part, good things kept happening to Xander only just made us like him less and less. (laughs) (laughs) That's so real. So yeah, let's jump back into the OC. Um, one of the the big, like the first big overarching plot line is the love triangle between Marissa, her longtime boyfriend Luke, and newcomer Ryan. As soon as Ryan and Marissa meet, there's like instant sparks, you guys. But she's dating Luke and she's been dating Luke for a very long time. Luke is very much aware that their relationship is disintegrating. Unbeknownst to Marissa, he's been cheating on her for who knows how long. But he doesn't want to lose her, especially not to this kid, Ryan. And 
it's it's a weird love triangle. I think it's a more realistic, more realistic one because she stays with Luke initially, but it's very clear that that's not really where she wants to be, which I think is much more realistic than I just love them both so much and I can't choose. She just she literally just stays with Luke because that's where she's been. Even that first meeting with Ryan and Marissa is very like beautiful and like cinematic and really like impressive uh, as a sort of like in terms of like a setup in fact like something that i think the oc something that i noticed about the oc that i on this rewatch is that i think it's also one of these first um teen dramas or like tv dramas to really start like to start to begin to like take chances cinematically and like invest cinematically in like a look of the show if that makes any sort of sense it does it does but, and it's true it's really true you guys it's beautiful to watch still beautiful to watch like i mean the coverage is basic but even just these shots like the sort of fades the sort of fade-ins like this meeting between ryan and marissa is like you know it comes like it's like a, a pan to like a wide and then it's like a cut to marissa and it's like a nighttime shot and all you and you see ryan in like this very like um James Dean he's like in this hoodie and like a leather jacket he's like very James Dean rebel without a cause like reminiscent and he's like lighting up a single cigarette and then like you know Marissa asks it to bum a smoke and then um he light and instead of like popping out his lighter to actually light hers he like touches theirs together to light it and the way like he moves back from the front it's just it and then the way he moves back from the frame like they're it's just beautiful and iconic within and of itself um and i think the show does a good job of sort of like setting up those those moments or like really um setting up those moments and not necessarily even setting up those moments, but like investing in those moments in a cinematic way. I hope that made some sort of sense. <laughs> it does. No, it does. And like, I want to add to the point that Alex just made. So um, very quickly, I had to make a correction. So um, the Vampire Diaries actually premiered in September 2009, six years after the OC. Okay. And um, I'm bringing this up to reference something that... The, well, basically, I'm, I'm doing the OC versus TVD in the way that it's shot. So the first thing is that, as Alex said, the OC, the OC is shot very cinematically and very beautifully. And it's not just when our protagonist or the couple that we're supposed to love is on screen. Everything is beautiful. The antagonists are shot beautifully. The The scenery is shot beautifully. The school campus is shot beautifully. I know the school campus is so gorgeous. The way they take care is like really wild. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we get these amazing wide shots, you guys. The beach, the mountains, the campus, the homes, everything. Um, and another thing that the OC does that is, I didn't even realize till I was re-watching the originals, um, or excuse me, watching the originals and re-watching TVD, is that it doesn't use music to manipulate. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper with that. The OC had an amazing soundtrack, like a groundbreaking soundtrack, which our patrons will have access to a playlist I've compiled of the best music that was on that show. But the music, the music was just like a cherry on top. It wasn't meant to be like um, a prop or a character device. What I mean by that is 
Yeah, we would have music playing like in times of joy or in times of love, especially during like makeout scenes or sex scenes. But they didn't play certain types of dark, ominous music whenever the antagonist came on screen or whenever someone was having a fight. We, these these this dialogue would either be done with the theme of the show playing very mutedly or in silence with just the dialogue on screen. Like basically the show forced you to decide who the good and the bad guys were. They weren't going to manipulate you by like the bad guys on play the bad guy music, you guys <laughs> like, like they didn't do that. And I really, I really respect that. The music on the OC is like, it was iconic and they definitely like take a snapshot of that sort of, I think the last vestiges of like that pop rock moment of the early aughts. So like there's, Death Cab for Cutie and Rooney and Phantom these, Planet. Phantom <laughs> Planet. I know that Phantom Planet that does like the title, the title song. Um, right. That is so like. And of course, used. the Dandy Warhols too. Yes, the Dandy Warhols. Um, and the show becomes sort of famous for that. And Gossip Girl will actually be really, um, I famous for that too. When we get to it, and um, we'll see like more like the cooks and like the virgins and. And you're so right. All these wides, all these like really beautiful, big wides. This show just like goes for it. I was like, yeah. Oh, I was like, yes, all the wides. There's so many wides. The big, wide shots beautiful are wides. And they're, they're breathtaking. breathtaking. <laughs> um, and I love the way the show shoots everybody, like including, like I said, the antagonist. You know, um, we have people like Caleb, Caleb Nickel and Julie Cooper Nickel. And even, um, you know, the, the um, Marissa's um, stalker or um, the guy who's fixated on her, Oliver. Everyone is shot really beautifully and really, really well. The show just wants to look good it's interesting because i think the oc also becomes a template for is also sort of the the beginnings of like having crazy hot people on you like you're like just i mean in terms of like the actors having like crazy like attractive hot actors like on your your teen show i think the oc like definitely starts that but it's funny i think re-watching it that's not really they all look good and that's and no shade to like anybody truly but what makes it isn't even like the attractiveness of the actors it's exactly what you said it's like this commitment to really shooting everyone in a beautiful way and I say that to say maybe teen drama creators like you don't necessarily have to have like crazy hot actors just like make sure just have a commitment to like the visual language of your show and like have a commitment to I guess like framing everybody in like the way that they need to be framed Mm -hmm. that's all i think that's what i mean by that to preserve the the youth of america's (laughs) self-esteem yeah i completely agree with that um one of the best examples of this um well, not one of the best like i'm not throwing shade to the 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 actress misha barton but i'm there's in rewatching the oc there's literally not a single scene a single frame where this girl doesn't look beautiful. There's right. not. <laughs> There's not. not. There really isn't. They like really make a commitment. And I think, and like I said, no shade to anyone, but to me, like Misha Barton's a very average looking white girl. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but the, they know her face, right? The makeup is on point. They know her angles. <laughs> right. That's, that's what I'm saying. But they know her makeup. They know her angles. They know the ones to hit. Like they know how to do it just so. Everybody should have that care. 
and that right. love attention. Even her hair on the show was amazing, you guys. So one of the things about Misha's hair on that show is she kind of has a square-shaped face. So they give her a very, like, blunt haircut, all one length, and she has bangs. And oftentimes, like, um, she will wear her bangs swept to the side, um, which gives, like, a softer appearance. And sometimes she will have the bangs, you know, coming straight down, which gives, like, this more youthful type of value girl feel and it's so crazy how with the one haircut they were so versatile and how they portrayed her character and where um you know in her a lot of her scenes with ryan her bangs are swept out of her face and you get a really good shot of her steel gray eyes um then when you know her her bangs are in her face like they play up her lips more it's subtle things that make a huge difference (laughs) So, like, let's talk a bit about Summer, Summer Roberts, who will become, I I think, like, the most probably iconic female character from this show. Uh, For sure. Um, She's for sure. No, continue. Oh, I was just saying she's played by Rachel Bilson. Yes, Rachel Bilson actually went on to have a pretty great career after um, the OC. Um, And it's interesting because when she was on the OC, I really wasn't checking for her as an actress. Now, with that said, I hadn't seen her in anything before. And a lot of times when you've never seen an actor in anything before and they play the character who's kind of like... I hate the term airhead, but like kind of flighty, kind of, you know that carefree girl, it can be um, easy to confuse the character with the actress. Well, Rachel Bilson is actually a pretty strong actress and Summer Roberts, the character she plays in the OC was kind of like the archetype for a complex rich girl. So, um, Marissa was like the sensitive rich girl, but then as we, as the seasons progressed and we got to know Summer better, we realized she was more complex than what had initially met the eye. Like Summer was like really, really, really smart and just kept it on the down low. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> and Summer had like great style, you guys. Um, I absolutely believe that a lot of, um, summer style especially with makeup and hair were an inspiration for Blair Waldorf on Gossip Girl Mm, that's interesting um to think about yeah that's okay I see it I see it I think summer has the most growth as a character over the course of the series because we see her um we meet her really sort of like leaving her passed out friend in the driveway she goes from that to you know marrying Seth like at the I think at the end of the series she I think has like a huge sort of like um arc as a character throughout the course um season one though we find her yeah she's like very much like a flighty rich girl and she's Marissa's good friend I mean, as good as a friend as you can be, I guess, if you're leaving your passed out friend in her driveway, um, who looks like she has alcohol poisoning. Um, right. Like, it could be worse. Could have left her at the party, I guess. I, that's just like, I left her at the party. and that, At least they got her home. In season one, we see her eventually, you know, like I said, become part of this core four and break off from her sort of like rich money, like, I think wealth obsessed friend by the end of season one, we see her be like a really good friend to Marissa because Marissa sort of Marissa's family like loses all their wealth. Um, 
because Marissa's dad, um, played by Tate Donovan, uh, Tate Donovan, who's like mad famous, like in the eighties, um, uh, has, you know, Bernie made off to the entire community. <laughs> oh my gosh. She used Bernie made off as a verb, you guys. And Summer is really the only friend that like sticks by Marissa through like that. So below the plot line of Marissa and Ryan getting together, there's a subplot of Summer and Seth getting together. And their relationship, like juxtaposed with Ryan and Marissa's relationship, is really, really, really sweet. They do have like their little dramas and their little up and downs. And Seth even is engaged in his own love triangle for a while between Anna, um, a girl from Pittsburgh who moves in, who is like the female equivalent of him, and Summer, the girl he's loved all his life. But in comparison to Ryan, Marissa, Luke, and their drama... It all seems very, very tame and very juvenile and very entertaining because as Alex pointed out, one of the first times we see Marissa with her friends is when Summer is dropping her passed out on her driveway because when the season opens, Marissa has a substance abuse problem, which continues for as long as she's on the show. True. I mean, and and in terms of like, I think Marissa's substance substance abuse problem, she's very like she it's just the it's just a thing like sometimes like sometimes it's good I don't think she ever really like she does stop like I want to say abusing alcohol but even then like I don't think not not really like I think she cuts the drugs and then maybe she goes light on the booze but she never really truly because it sort of just varies depending on the mood she's in Right. She does cut out the pills for sure, but she never really stops drinking. And one of the the things that the show highlights, especially in season one, is that um, Marissa drinks a lot when she's doing well, but she drinks heavy and she drinks premeditated and she drinks in secret when she is unhappy. That's consistent through her time on the series. Mm-hmm. And I also agree with Alex's earlier point that Summer does have the best character arc. And it's interesting that, um, you know, you made the comparison to Tyler Lockwood on TVD because they're both introduced in more or less the same way. Like the carefree party animal friend that you think isn't really a good friend going in and maybe they're not. But the show gives them an opportunity to become a really good friend and like um, devoted to the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So... I think one of the big, like, if if my memory serves itself, one of the big reasons why OC was, like, such a big deal in its breakout, in its breakout, is because it was, like, it would actually show teenagers, like, doing drugs. Um, and you, and we see that, like, yeah, they're drinking, and that's, and that feels bad, but, like, it's not as bad as, like, um, you know, and they're doing, like, real drugs. Like, they're doing cocaine. Like, not, like, just, you know, smoking weed and stuff. But um, in the pilot, like, you see, like, a group of kids, like, like yeah, doing lines. And granted, it's funny, like, that never really comes, like, I, I think that happens in the pilot. And Marissa is, like, taking pills. and But she has, like, a, but it's clearly, like, a problem. But I, I don't remember it ever really like that aspect of it ever really showing up again. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it didn't. Um, I think maybe two, maybe two other times max throughout the whole series. Right. And um, why I think this is significant is because this was the first show that I think was honest about a the fact that um, a lot of teenagers use drugs, especially those with with too much money and too little supervision, and also um, honest about the fact. That while some people like Marissa has substance abuse problems, there are people that actually use drugs recreationally. And for many people, like going to a party is synonymous with, you know, drug use and alcohol. Right. I I just find it interesting because I think it's something that like every time like a teen show comes out, like that's part of like. Uh, I think that's just part of like a like a seizing <laughs> like a they're like oh no they're showing the kids doing drugs but um now that I think about it I don't think there's ever really a show that like takes drug like I think that's I think drug use is always like a hook to get people in but it's never I don't think I've ever really seen it like glamorized like there's always somebody usually on the show with like a substance abuse problem and that substance Mm -hmm. abuse problem is like taken pretty seriously yeah i agree i mean every everything from skins uk to degrassi when we did have characters who use drugs again we did have those characters using drugs recreationally but even with those characters we see how like this irresponsibility affected their lives and the ones that did have a substance abuse problem we see how it affected them their friendships their relationships their family everything right i was about to say i don't ever think like i've seen a teen show like take drug use casually i mean casually in a way that like there are never like there are no consequences to that shows like everybody uses drugs and everybody's fine afterwards like there's always um some sort of like caveat of like addict like substance abuse or somebody has substance abuse or like they reinforce somewhere that like doing drugs is wrong like even on euphoria um you know rue is an addict and like it is not and it's not pretty like at all like um mm-hmm. it's really scary so um all that to say i think uh i don't know why people i don't know why we always freak out about it maybe i don't know why they always like freak out in like the zygast oh i just wanted to say it's interesting so something that i find interesting is that like ryan is very like how marissa like you know has like a substance abuse problem but ryan i think through the course of the series like drinks occasionally but even then not like not really not a lot like not like ryan doesn't really ryan will like socially drink sometimes ish um but he doesn't really drink he doesn't do drugs he's very like he's very straight straight in that manner and I thought yeah, that was like Brian, a good attention to detail of like that character. Cause I guess like it makes sense. Like if he grew up with like a mother and like people around him with like these really bad substance abuse problems, like he himself would like be aware that like he might like have an issue with addiction. So he just doesn't go, he just doesn't deal with it or like he doesn't touch it in any sort of way. Yeah. I thought that dynamic was really interesting too, because a lot of times I've seen, they actually give us characters like Ryan who have substance abuse in their families. And then they will make that character have a substance abuse problem and, you know, wrap it up with, well, you know, he learned it from home. 
Right. Every situation. I thought it was great to not give Ryan a substance abuse problem and make him deeply attracted and in love with a girl who does. Um, so, like, from a psychological point of view, even if we have, like, really messed up relationships with our parents, if you were raised in the home with that parent, you a lot of times you will unconsciously seek partners who are like them and and by getting acceptance from that person, we feel the sort of love we didn't get from that parent. And it's very interesting to me that he would gravitate to the girl with a substance abuse problem. And very early on, he realizes um, that Marissa has a substance abuse problem. And, you know, he he goes into save it mode, fix it mode, which is something that his mother even touched on um, when she when she visits um, early in the season for, the, you know, the first and last time that Ryan is the fixer. Ryan is the one that wants to, to solve problems. So he sees this girl who is, you know, in a lot of ways, drinking her life away. And he's not repelled by her. He doesn't see like a miniature version of his mother. He wants to fix her. He wants to solve the problem. And I thought that was a great dynamic to have between the two of them. And I guess like this is a testament to how this character arc happens with him. But Ryan is very like, like save a hoe. Like that's like, (laughs) that's his. I wanted to say that. I really did. (laughs) <laughs> that's where he he but that's where he's at like it's so real like um this this thing with him and marissa is so very much him trying to i guess fix her or like wanting to save her and you know but she has to save herself and she never quite does marissa's sort of dynamic is this sort of unhappy rich archetype in that like you know she is very rich. She's very privileged, but you know, her mom isn't there. Like her mom is not really in her life. She's not that close with her little sister. You know, she likes her dad, but even her dad is like, not, (laughs) is not really like, there's no one who is sort of like, who understands what's going on with her. And like, they don't want, and they don't really want to understand what's going on with her. Mm -hmm. Um, here comes Ryan who like very much cares and you're right. He, she sees a lifeline. She's like, my God, Mm -hmm. finally somebody who like gives a shit. And I think, well, I want to say though, I feel a little differently about Marissa's mom. It's the issue with Marissa's mom, Julie, is not that she's not in Marissa's life. She's actually very involved, a little too involved. But like Alex said, she doesn't know her daughter because she doesn't want to. She only sees Marissa as she wants her to be, not as Marissa actually is. And Marissa feels very, very stifled and and smothered by her mom's um, expectations of her, similar to her boyfriend, Luke. They both just see what they want to see, hear what they want to hear. They're, they don't really care about Marissa, the actual person. They care about the Marissa fantasy living in their heads. That's true. That's like, I think that that's, that's real. That's definitely a more like correct reading. Julie's like, oh, you used to do, to do this. Like, why don't you do this anymore? And, you know, Marissa's just like, that's, that's not who I am. Like, I think there's an there's an episode where Julie talks to Marissa and she's like, Marissa, like, why don't you join Caitlin at the stables? You used to love horses. And Marissa's like, that's when I was like 10. So like Julie's trying to, you're right, create this version. And then at the cotillion, um, when everything really goes up and goes left, Julie's really working to like, Julie's like, oh, she's such a Libra. She's um, She's trying to work from the outside in. 
Like, mm-hmm. if she's trying to make, if in Julie's mind, if everything looks perfect, then, like, that outside perfection will somehow seep into into the inside. But that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. And Ju- Julie, like, um, so Julie's put in the antagonist role throughout the series more than once. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting because she is she is not necessarily a villain um marissa and her are put in adversarial roles but she doesn't want wish ill on her daughter and everything she's doing she's doing because she thinks that it will be like the right thing for her daughter get her daughter on the right track and you know that typical parent who doesn't really know their child anymore and again is living with this fantasy of what their child they want their child to be she puts the blame initially on Ryan for her daughter's quote unquote change and her daughter's rebelliousness because Ryan's presence is actually forcing her to see Marissa as she is for the first time. Exactly. It's, and in fact, Julie, I think becomes one of my favorite characters, like throughout the run of the series. Um, she, she's a very complex person. Once we like learn more about her, in sort of her her history and her life, and she becomes probably one of the more empathetic uh, characters of the season. I think if this show were to re-air now, she would very much be like the audience's favorite character because like she's definitely her character is definitely like the type of woman that I think we're just now like in our current moment really working to try to like. Not working. I think it's her type of character is the woman that we now like celebrate very much celebrate that type of person in which is like, you know, someone who was poor and like married rich and <laughs> kept marrying rich right. and like, did right. what they had to do to secure the bag. And like she sure did. She sure did. <laughs> like at every juncture, Julie Cooper was like, she I secured would- the bag twice. Like three times, three times. Like I'm right. not. It was a bigger bag each time. It was a bigger bag each time. Like she never let that shit ever come between her and her money. Like let she was like, you, Julie's a, a survivor. You guys, period. she is a survivor. She's like, I will never be poor. And like she is a Catherine Pierce of the OC. She really is. And yo, and when she. And when she was poor for that brief, brief moment, she, like, worked her ass off to get out of that situation. She was not messing with it in the slightest. Oh, my gosh. I want to talk about Julie. She's, like, she's, she's, like you said, a complicated-ass character, right? Um, So Julie, like, this someone they tease early on was, was, like, grew up poor like Ryan. And as a season, as a show progresses through seasons, we realize just how much they have in common. Like, Mm -hmm. Ryan's not a go-getter like Julie, right? He would have been in the same situation if Sandy hadn't pulled him out of it. Julie, like, scraped and clawed her own way into her own happy endings. (laughs) And that's why I actually think Julie's, like, a really well-done character, because once you sort of start learning more about her, you realize why in that initial season, why she hated Ryan so much. Like she hated Ryan for the reason, like you said, that she, you know, blames Ryan for this quote unquote change in her daughter. That's, but she also hates Ryan because she sees herself in Ryan. And, you know, she probably within and of herself is, you know, she feels that sort of imposter syndrome. Like she knows she's a fraud, but in, you know, she's worried 
that Ryan's going to see through her. You know, she's worked very hard to sort of, you know, create and maintain this facade. And that's why Julie is like, um, like one of the greater, like one of the best characters on the show because of how complex she is, you know, worked on changing herself to be like, you know, the, the perfect rich white woman, you know, like she knows and it, it deals with class in that the show deals with class in that way of, of how it's not just about how it's not enough to be rich. You have to be rich and blue blooded, right? You have to have always been rich and how Mm -hmm. there are all these little ways that like people who are blue buds will figure you out and you learn like you have to learn like a certain lingo, a certain way of walking, a certain way of talking, a certain certain reference points. And if you slip up on any of them at any time, how it can be like your undoing and how and we see this in terms of how, you know, Julie sort of works to really be the perfect rich white woman, not only for herself, but to then expand her her first husband, Jimmy, expand his, to essentially help his business. Um, Cause when he does go under, we see how she starts to work in overdrive to see what she can salvage. Right. Mm-hmm. In terms That's of absolutely like, right. right. She's trying to like work her connect. She's trying to work the connection. She's trying to see, like she's trying to take the temperature of the community to see like, okay, all these connections that she built in this, like, rich blue blood community, how many of them does she still have left? How many can she work? Like, what can she do? She's always, like, she's always hustling. She's always working. She's always thinking. She's just, um, because, you know, she doesn't want to be poor. She doesn't right. want to be poor. She's led, she's led that life, and she doesn't want to do it ever again. Yeah. Yes to everything that Alex just said. Um, and, like, I'm, I'm going to dig deeper into Julie because she was... Um, for me, easily one of the best written characters on that show. Um, so the thing about Julius, as Alex said, she was out here hustling, networking. She never had a job because that wasn't in the job description, description. for her place, right? That's real but shit. She had a network. She had a large network, and she achieved that network, you know, from what Alex said walking the right way, talking the right way, doing the right things, the things that could help her fit in. She wasn't rich herself, but she had married into someone that was old money. So that was good enough for the community. And she got her foot in the door and did what she had to do. Like one episode that really, um, well, besides the episode where we learn where she's from, which is early in the season, later in season one, we learned that um, through her sister, Cindy, just how well she's crafted this role of Julie Cooper and then later Julie Nickel. Her sister asked at the shower, does anyone know what my sister's, you know, favorite food is? And then one of the Newport wives says, oh, this one's easy. It's Chilean sea bass with roasted potatoes. And this is like, nah, it's a double, double burger, heavy on the sauce, extra fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> right. So, like, yeah, like she, outs her. she eats. Even what she eats, she has crafted to be like the right answer, the rich answer. So that is excellent, excellent character work. Like, and it's excellent, excellent writing and it's excellent, excellent work to like reveal about your character. And even better, it's, it's something just that, that short scene that you're talking about is something that my screenwriting professor like hated flashbacks. She's like, 
if you have to like use a freaking flashback to like talk about your character and then like or to reveal like a history of your character like then she, she's like then you're a shitty writer and <laughs> she was I mean, no lies detected she so. was like she was a savage like but um one of the things she talked about was how but something that's so excellent about that scene is that like just in that short scene of you know what's her favorite meal it's this and no it's this uh you know is is excellent excellent character work and it's an excellent example of how you can um say so much how you can say so much about another character um while uh in advancing sort of the plot in like a short amount of like in a very short amount of time right because Mm -hmm. like even now like you like you remember that you remember like oh and it's and it's something that the audience gets um and then takes and then it's infused into this character and i i'm sorry it's just like i'm geeking out because like it's just like a really great it's really good writing um right and that's why i love julie because she really is a character within a character the julie that we see is very much a front and she almost never let like comes out of character so we can see who she really is or was before all of this even in that scene when her sister exposes you know her very generic peasant tastes in food she doesn't like run up to her and start screaming and throwing elbows she just gets up very graceful like the lady she is and she says holding her purse daintily in her hands i refuse to sit here and be humiliated and then she walks gracefully away and it's so detailed (laughs) right it's so detailed and it's and it's played so phenomenally by mary Meredith, um, oh my God, her name is Meredith. Um, oh, not Meredith. I'm, I'm a lie. Le- Melinda Clark. Um, Melinda Clark, who goes on to, who also uh, left the show with like, and went on to have like a really good career. She ends up, um, she was later on like Nikita and a bunch of other shows and, and is still working. She also played Kelly Donovan, Matt Donovan's mom on TVD. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I know. Damn. Um, She's been getting those TV mom paychecks, you guys, and she, she deserves it. <laughs> she deserves it. Uh, yeah, I would say, like, out of this show, like, I would say her, Chris Karamek, Luke, funny enough, Luke and... um. And Rachel Bilson and and Benjamin McKenzie probably went off to have, like, they probably all had, like, the best careers. Absolutely. And Luke is an interesting character because, as we said previously, we meet Luke and he's just, like, he's basically the male equivalent of the summer that we initially meet. Mm -hmm. Um, Both these people don't seem like they have Marissa's best interests at heart and really don't give a shit about anyone but themselves. And then as the series progresses and we we finally get out of the love triangle and Luke just becomes very firmly Marissa's friend. And then later Ryan and Seth's friend, um, we see an inkling of something in him, but then his character, you know, uh, uh, is essentially um, written away from the show. Luke and his dad moved to Portland. And I didn't see Chris Carmack again until much later when he was on the series Nashville, which was actually really good. And he can actually really sing, you guys. Check that yeah, out. Yeah, he's a really good singer. That's true. Um, <laughs> you're right. That's true. So like Luke and it's 
And I want to say, so Luke becomes their friend friend, like really their friend, when everybody at school finds out that his dad is gay. Which is a big deal in 2003. Which is a huge deal. Everyone finds out that his dad is gay. And it's funny, Luke gets like a whole ass episode to himself almost. He's like the A plot line of that episode. The plot line actually continues though, right? Because like in his like acting out or whatever from his family dynamic, we we later on begins an affair with Julie, Marissa's mom. And we have the whole dynamic of his dad's going to move because of the scandal of it all. So it kind of like it keeps echoing even when it's the episode's not about him. Right. But I, um, I think I was just saying like in the re- how the sort of relationship, how the power dynamic, I guess, changes because Luke is sort of your Luke is sort of like your Nate Jacobs. Right. In that, you know, he's like his family is, quote unquote, perfect and mm-hmm. that and he's quote unquote perfect and that's just sort of where he derives his power and then mm-hmm. once you know everybody finds out his dad is gay you know he's ostracized at school because homophobia and like nobody wants to talk to him every no one like wants to go over to his house anymore it's used as like a catalyst of how you know this is how you know who your real friends are because mm-hmm he's like all alone and then Ryan and then the core four decide to like, you know, really work to be his friend, Seth in particular, like mm-hmm. his like, Hey man, like come over and, and hang out and play video games. And, and Luke, you know, who is really, I guess, being bullied at school just latches on, does not let go. Um, and they all become friends. And that's, in fact, Luke is the only one that believes that really believes Ryan when Oliver, when Oliver shows up, Luke is the only one that believes Ryan that Oliver is crazy. So yeah, the Luke dynamic was really well done. Like we said, he was written out of the show fairly early on, but he, even as a character that was eventually written off, he was very well developed in the span of time that we got to be see him and be with Luke on screen. Um, So (laughs) Nate Jacobs is such a triggering name, but yeah, he (laughs) is kind of like the Nate Jacobs of the show, not necessarily reveling in power, but reveling in privilege. He knows what it means to have the family that he has, have the money that he has and have the um, athleticism that he has and have the looks that he has easy. It's just so easy for him. Right. And it does manifest in violence, right? Because Luke is the one who gives that like now iconic line. He's the one that like beats up Ryan. He beats up Ryan and and he beats up Seth and that pilot Luke and his friends beat the crap out of them. And Luke is the one that does like, welcome to the OC bitch. Like he's the one that delivers that line. Yes. Yes. So Um, yeah, it does manifest in violence, but I think that violence has a lot more to do with, um, you know, um, more like family aside, this is a behavior that we see from almost all the guys, except for maybe Seth on the OC when it comes to a girl that they like. We even see it with um, Ryan's friend from Chino, Teresa, when she's dealing with her um, fiance that she runs away from. He also resorts to violence. Like apparently that's a thing. Fighting over women is a very big feature on this show. <laughs> um, um, but I, I guess I see it in a different way in that Luke Luke's Luke's violence comes from a place of like 
of just wanting to assert dominance for the sake of asserting dominance, like within and of itself. He just for the fact that he can. Whereas like when Ryan is violent, it's always in defense of someone. It's never just within and of, of itself. And I think it's something particular to his character. I'm of the opinion that sometimes violence is necessary from a pragmatic sense because of the world we live in. Ryan's violence always manifests in that like he, Ryan always knows like he's taking a risk, like from like with Ryan being violent, there's always something, there's something hanging over his head in that like, this could get me sent back to prison. This could get me like sent back to Chino. Like this could like really end up bad, but I'm take So I, so I'm taking this action usually like, like I said, more often than not in defense of someone. So like, I think when they go to Chino at that party, like he like punches somebody, but it's like, it's in defense of Seth. Um, no, you're right. You're right. You're um, right. And I mean, that's, it's all sad. No, that's valid. That's real. And that's that's a way I hadn't I hadn't really fully considered it before. But you're right. Um, So Luke's character and Ryan's character are in some shit very early on. Their first like their first like maybe move towards bonding is when um, they um, accidentally start. Luke's picks a fight with Ryan at an abandoned um, model home that he was um, staying at, and they accidentally start a fire. And while Luke's friends are running away and telling him to get out of here before the cops come, he goes back to save Ryan. And we see that, like, okay, Luke is probably a, a, a horrible boyfriend, but he's not an evil person. And so yeah. this is like the first step that they take to um, making Luke a more sympathetic character. Later on, when um, he finds out that his dad is gay, and this is a really great scene because he finds out while in Ryan's presence. So he and Ryan find out that his dad is gay at the same time. They're at his dad's car dealership, and they see his dad, like, making out with his partner, his business partner, who is also, like, his boyfriend on the side, I guess. And he looks at Ryan, and Ryan looks at him, and, like, they have this shared secret now. They're bonded, whether they want to be or not, right? Mm -hmm. And it is so, so well done, because in that moment, we can see, like, his fear. We see Luke for the first time, I think, as as what he is, a teenage boy. He sees his father doing this, and the first thing he thinks about is himself, his brothers, his mother, and what this means to his family. And, you know, for once— Ryan is the one, like, I guess with the upper hand, um, Ryan is consistently that character on this show who cares a lot about people's privacy, who cares a lot about, um, you know, who puts a lot of stock into his word. And so he, um, he promises Luke, he's not going to say anything and he doesn't. And um, he is so um, he he says something to Marissa. And when rumors start spreading around school, he is so angry about this that he stops talking to Marissa over this guy that he doesn't really, really like. Right. Mm -hmm. But he gave this guy his word. And it later comes out that Marissa isn't the one who spilled the beans. But this is significant because we, we see how much stock Ryan puts into his word and keeping his promises. And he's hurting for Luke when the rumors start spreading around school. And, you know, maybe it was a 2003 thing, but I absolutely believe in that social circle, a family like his, it would have been the same blowback. 
here, even in 2019, um, where, you know, the perfect family um, is rocked with this kind of scandal. I believe it would probably be the same blowback. And I mean, the fact is um, homophobia is still pretty rampant, whether we want to admit it or not. Right. right. No, absolutely. And this on top of that, this man is having an affair. Um, mm-hmm. He has a wife and he has children. And, uh, you know, we 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 saw, I think, the very, very accurate ways that Julie became a pariah when um, her husband's um, embezzlement hit the fan. And then we saw the ways or we heard the ways that Luke's mom also became a pariah when her husband's affair with another man, you know, got leaked to the public. So let's, um, I guess, talk about Anna for a second. Anna Stern from Pittsburgh. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, Anna is in a lot of ways the female equivalent of Seth. She's into comic books and Star Wars and all the geeky shit that he likes. But Anna is this in the package of a self-assured, calm, gorgeous girl. Just all the berries. So fucking cute, you guys. Just so, so cute. cute. <laughs> Just cute. All the berries. And strikes up a, a relationship with Seth and, and is into Seth and, and Seth is into her, um, sort of forming this, so, this love triangle. She's so great. Um, and she becomes part of the friend group for a while and even comes back later in season four or three when they're all going to college, um, makes a brief yeah. reappearance. And it's fun. And it's so good to see her again when she does come back. It is good because she feels like our friend too, right? And I love she, that the show doesn't dispose of characters like that. That's true. And it's like, not only does she come back, but she, so one of the things that I love about how, so I guess what I want to talk about is it's a typical Anna, Seth, and Summer are like, it's a, it's a very typical like relation, like love triangle arc but what makes it wonderful is that like in terms of like how it resolves is they resolve it in a way that like does it resolves in a way that doesn't make um summer and anna like adversaries they become in fact like they become good friends with their like shared love of golden girls so much as i think anna describing summer as like the blanche to her rose uh which is really sweet and really wonderful like and once again like i think unprecedented like not really common at like when this show was like on air i think when the show was on air like they were still sort of like resolving those things as like the girls being like nasty to each other and like mm-hmm. that doesn't happen here I really love the way female friendships are done on the OC overall. Like Alex said, having the 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 girls within a love triangle become friends is kind of groundbreaking. I don't think it's been done before or since. Um, and Summer and Marissa's friendship, too, when we come into it, we make a lot of assumptions about Summer, which are quickly dispelled. She is a good friend. She's not a frenemy. She's not catty. She's not doing shit behind Marissa's back. She's not jealous of her. They're just friends. And right. I love that the female friendships on this show weren't marked by like ulterior motives and like other shady shit that really um, 
just waters down their friendship and casts, you know, falls into stereotypes about female friendships in general. I really right. like that they didn't go that route. <laughs> Even just like, and I think just how the female characters all interact with each other, period, is very refreshing. I, I, I mean, I think about when Teresa comes back, like, or like when we meet Teresa, Marissa and Teresa don't really beef with each other. Like when Ryan goes to see Teresa, um, sorry, Teresa is like Ryan's old girlfriend from Chino who I think they were still sort of like in a weird holding pattern. And then he had just sort of left. Yeah. In fact, they always make it clear that like the boys are like the problems in like these relationships, which I appreciate. Marissa isn't threatened by Teresa. Marissa's actually like really happy to sort of like embrace her and like get to know her. If anything, Marissa's sort of just sort of bummed out in that, you know, Ryan can't or Ryan can't or he doesn't like to talk about, I think, his life before Newport. You know, Marissa says, you know, there's just all these things I don't know about you. You know, you've had you had this whole life and you don't talk about it. That's strange. And that's why I want to, like, get to know this person. And that's why, like, I'm interested in getting to know her. And even in, you know, Marissa and Teresa are very friendly with each other. And even when it looks like, you know, Teresa might be pregnant with Ryan's baby, like Marissa very much is like, you know, Marissa does the right thing. And she lets that relationship come first and like lets that sort of take precedent over whatever she's feeling in the moment. And it's just, and and doesn't get catty or, or tries to like sabotage or like does anything crazy. She just lets that take precedence, which is nice. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just nice. And it's not how, and it's just not usually how relationships with women are like depicted on screen. And it's, it's great to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that slightly. Um, I do feel like there was a bit of um, tension. There was actually a lot of tension between Teresa and Marissa. And I think they felt threatened by each other, right? Because for Teresa, Marissa represented this shiny new life. And Marissa, for, for Marissa, Teresa represented this, you know, um, familiarity and shared history. But they never really let that interfere with the way they treated each other, which was significant. They They were both very much into Ryan and wanted to be with Ryan. And this was very clear, like nobody lied about it, but it was kind of like it it became a secondary thing where it was it was it was made very obvious to the audience that they both understood the type of person that Ryan was and that fighting each other wasn't going to achieve anything. And that if there was a choice to be made between the two of them, it had to be made by Ryan. He wasn't like a piece of land that they could fight over or a piece of property. All they could do was just exist and let him make his choice, which was, which was really good. Like it was kind of like the opposite of what Summer and Anna did in the beginning. In the beginning, there were all these contests and whatever to get Seth's attention and Marissa and Teresa just bypassed all that when it came to Ryan. They had, I guess I would say, a a kind of a peaceful neutrality with each other that could have become a friendship under different circumstances, but never got all the way there. Sure. All right. Fair. That's fair. Um, I guess, okay, maybe, they, yeah, it wasn't friendship, but there was always, like, it was friendliness. And the friendliness never... I don't know. I guess maybe at times it was forced, but it never felt like not genuine. 
yes, exactly. Obviously, there was tension among them, but I feel like their interactions with each other were very, very genuine. It's kind of like, I'm not being friends with you because of this. I'm like, I'm trying to make this overture or extend this olive branch in spite of all that's happening around us. Right, right. And then... Let's okay. So then let's talk about like the adults, I guess. I think Sandy Cohen is definitely one of like of the 2000s era is one of like the most iconic like TV dads. I agree. And it's interesting because I hadn't even thought of TV dads and I thought about him for the longest. But when I rewatch the show, I see the ways that he molds a lot of characters, even TVD's Alaric. Sandy is really invested in doing the right thing. He's a really principled person and he has a really, really big heart. But most notably is he's a parent that takes a very, very active role in the lives of his child and the children around him. Before Ryan, Seth really didn't have any friends, so there was no need to do things like give him a curfew or whatever. But as this, you know, evolves, as he gets friends, as he gets girlfriends, girls fighting over him, they become very, very different than the other Newport parents. Seth and Ryan have curfews. They need to know where these kids are. They'll tell them that they can't go somewhere. They can't do anything, which is very, very different than a lot of the other Newport parents. And this it's significant that Sandy isn't from Newport Beach. He's from Brooklyn, New York. And he's kind of taken those sensibilities of child rearing from his, you know, his Jewish mother, who was born, also born and raised in Brooklyn. And, you know, is a is a disciplinarian. So Kristen is kind of like the lax parent and Sandy's a disciplinarian, which a, a lot of times we don't see that in dynamics with sons. Usually it's the fathers that's like, boys will be boys. Just let them do what they want, you know? And the mother's got to be the one to put her foot down. No, that's true. Sandy is very much involved in like Ryan and Seth's lives and like is very, you know, he's their dad. And it's funny, like, you know, we've talked about adoption a bit um and ryan is definitely like their adoptive adoptive son i think for sandy and both kirsten and sandy takes his sort of like fathership role with ryan very seriously and in fact later on in the series i think season three season four when we meet ryan's real dad we see like even how how threatened sandy is by him like or not well, I don't want to know. I don't know if threatened is the right, right word. He, I think he is a bit threatened, but like also very protective of yes. Ryan. He's extremely protective just because of um, all the people that, that will come into Ryan's life from his, not all the people, because Teresa is very sweet and very wonderful. But I think all of the adult figures that will come into Ryan's life from his old life, from his time in Chino, where he's from, are not are always sort of bring destructive qualities right um unfortunately or or not destructive qualities but will bring in just they're uncomfortable and i think rightfully so they're uncomfortable maybe like with the surroundings and it and like the things in like the anxiety from being in such an uncomfortable place will like Mm -hmm. trigger bad behavior and because he does take that father role very seriously. I thought this was interesting because um, Sandy is, you know, like you said, um, Ryan's like their foster child. And but they both very much see him as a son. And he never stops calling them 
um, Kirsten and Sandy, like he never calls them mom and dad, which I thought was significant, but it's very clear that Ryan also sees them as his parents. And we see that evolution in season one as Ryan becomes more comfortable with them. And as he becomes more comfortable, we actually get to know Ryan better because part of the one of the hallmarks of Ryan as a character in the early season one was how guarded he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sandy is interesting. Sandy's, like Alex said, fiercely protective of Ryan, but he is not um, an unreasonable person. And it's not like he's like being territorial with Ryan, just the opposite. When Ryan's mom comes back into their lives, you know, he's, he's skeptical, but he, he's trying to be supportive of her sobriety and getting her son back and, and whatnot. And it doesn't last. And that's when um, Kirsten realizes that, you know, this kid needs us. He really needs us because he, the people in his life aren't dependable. And I think he was, um, Sandy was more skeptical when it came to Ryan's dad, because it's like, where have you been all these years? Like he checked out before Ryan's mom did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're dealing with someone like that and you're dealing with someone who went through something that Ryan, like Ryan did, Sandy's behavior is very like very, very on brand for his characters, both a dad and a lawyer. He's more protective of Brian than his of Ryan than his own son, Seth, because he understands that as far as Ryan has come, he can easily be knocked back down with one person or one set of circumstances. And he really does his best to shield Ryan in a lot of ways. Right. I think the way that Sandy and Kirsten parent Ryan versus how they parent Seth is is interesting to look at and is one of and the fact that we're even, I think, honing in on it and can see the difference is just like a real testament to just really strong character work and really strong writing from the show's writers of seeing the difference because I do think they parent Ryan differently in a different way that they parent Seth. Cause Ryan will have these periods. I think that come, you know, at the end of season one in the beginning of season two, and then sort of after Marissa's death, Ryan will just, you know, take off for periods of time. And for Ryan, that's, and it's funny, like when Ryan does it, Sandy and Kirsten are like, okay, fine, do that. But when Seth does it, I think also at the end of season one, when Ryan is leaving Newport because he thinks that Teresa's baby is his and he just, you know, Seth just sort of takes off. For Seth, it is unacceptable. It's like, no, 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 (laughs) no. Like a whole bucket of no. That is, I think, how they, they do parent them. Like Ryan is very much given like a long sort of, for lack of better term, leash and leeway to sort of do what he wants. And Seth is not, they all, but then in other ways, they sort of let Seth, um, they're, they're sort of lackadaisical with Seth in a way that they're not with Ryan. So like when it comes to school or like Seth's direction in life or like what he's going to do, they're sort of like, okay, Seth, just like, whatever, like do whatever you feel. But with Ryan, they're like, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you going to do? Like, let's talk about it. Like, let's figure it out. Right. So it it, it is interesting to watch. And it's interesting to watch throughout the series. And it becomes, it especially becomes interesting when, when we 
deal with Kirsten's alcohol abuse problem to see the different ways in which she sort of responds to the, like, and when they have that intervention for her, I think, how she responds differently to both boys, sort of, like, bringing up their concerns. Like, even in small things, so one of the highlights of these Newport Beach parents and their kids is how spoiled they are materially. Um, Characters like Summer, Marissa, when we first meet her before her dad, you know, is found out embezzling all that money. Luke, they are very, very spoiled. When we, the season opened, Seth has a car. He has nowhere to be and nowhere to go, but he's got a car, you guys. And then very early on, he convinces Ryan to go to this party in Chino that Ryan tells him not to go to. And the car gets basically like jacked and like robbed for parts and whatnot. And he and Ryan have this like lie, which becomes an an ongoing joke because the parents know it's a lie that this, this car was vandalized outside of the, an IMAX theater. And for all of season one, Seth's parents do not buy him a new car. Marissa is driving him and Ryan to school and home every day. Like, Seth right. doesn't get a new car, you guys. They do not replace his car. They're like, you lie, and we know you lied, but we can't prove it. What we can do, though, is not get you another car. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so true. That's really, really real. So there you have it, folks. This is part one of why the OC was so fun to watch and holds such a special place in the fabric of network teen dramas. The OC didn't just feature well-paced, enjoyable, and compelling plots, but the acting was on point as well, as evidenced by the fact that most of the cast, even those in minor roles, have continued to enjoy successful acting careers. Be sure to check out our patrons exclusive the oc inspired spotify playlist and tune in next week for part two of our oc recap check out our special top tier patrons only music video retrospective of the artist formerly known as prince airing this saturday m and i will be discussing what made prince a true original as well as other artists whose visions he inspired the episode will focus on his artistry his vision and what made him a true pioneer in the art of music videos Follow the good, the bad, the basic pod on Spotify to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content, spread the word and become a show producer and patron on Patreon. Your weekly support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly content as well as exclusive bonus material. As always, be sure to check out our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. And of course, be sure to follow us at Good Bad Basic Pod on Twitter. Until next time. Later. Bye. Bye.